Our Bible readings this morning are from the Old Testament, some sections from Ezekiel. First of all, first chapter, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, to begin with. Let's hear the word of God. In my thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. And then picking up verse 28, towards the end of the, the last verse of the first chapter of Ezekiel. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, continuing in chapter 2, he said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people. They will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, Go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language whose words you cannot understand. Surely, if I had sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me. For all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But 
I will make you as unyielding and hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. And he said to me, Son of man, listen carefully and take to heart all the words I speak to you. Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they listen or fail to listen. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where, I, where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went into bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kebar River, and there, where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. Amen. May God bless to us this reading from his word. Thanks, Alec, for that, that reading from Ezekiel. Um, I warn you now, not only this week, but next week as well, I'm back. And uh, <clears throat> in case you want to decide, suddenly you've got to wash your hair next Sunday morning. Um, <clears throat> and I'll uh, want to do two Sundays in Ezekiel. And next week, go to, I think, probably what is the most famous chapter in the book. Yeah, I'll leave that just hanging there. But for now, I wanted to look at the call of Ezekiel which we really have in these first three chapters of the book. Okay. Now, standing where I'm standing and looking around, it seems to me that a good number of you have already had a good number of birthdays. <laughs> Just saying. I don't know if you remember any birthdays as particularly special, maybe because something happened, you were greeted, surprised by a, a, someone or, or something. Maybe one of the birthdays you remember is because something happened in the world that day. Or maybe like me, your memories of your birthdays just kind of all kind of merge together, you know, and I, I find it hard to, to separate one from another of the 38 I've had. Sorry, I thought I might have got away with that. <laughs> Obviously not. Now, I, I have no idea how old uh, Ezekiel was when he died. But I'm pretty sure that for the rest of his life, Ezekiel remembered his 30th birthday. Ezekiel was born into the family who were to be priests. And his 30th birthday was then always earmarked to be special, for it was when you became 30 that you were really fully able to become a priest. The probation time was over, and you'd been brought up in the, the ways of the temple and everything else. And when you turned 30, that was the big day of becoming a real priest. But five years earlier, Ezekiel and Many others in Jerusalem were taken into exile. 
So there was no temple around. He was not in Jerusalem. There was no role for a, a, a priest. And he and his fellow exiles were suffering. They weren't just looking back to the time that they were in Jerusalem as some golden era in the way that um, for example, uh, an Aberdeen supporter like me looks back on the 1980s. Those were the days. He wasn't just doing that. It was much more. Because they were the people chosen and called by God, they believed. Give it, promised the promised land. They were in the promised land. They'd settled in the promised land. King Solomon had built the temple. And there were all the promises there about how God was going to meet with His people at the temple and, and so on. And now... That was all being called into question. They weren't there. What, what, what had happened? Had God, Ezekiel might have wondered, had God just got fed up with them with all of their disobedience and their to and froing, and had God just turned his back on them after all these years? Or maybe, was this a worse thought? Maybe there was a better or a stronger God out there. Maybe they were in exile because the Babylonians had a better God who was looking after them. You see, that their whole identity as the people of God, their whole identity as, as who they were and who they understood themselves to be was just called into question. The very foundations of their understanding had been, had been ripped apart. Everything they believed and everything that they supposed they had understood was called into question. So, happy birthday, Ezekiel. No role in the temple. Nobody going to turn up and say, here's a card. No cake. No folk coming around to sing happy birthday to you, Ezekiel. In fact, if there was a song in the air, it was more likely to be in the words of Psalm 137, or like the words of Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Everything, everything was wrong. And God burst in. Ezekiel was given an amazing vision, and the details of that are in verses 4 to, to 28. We didn't make Alec read all of that as well. And um, partly, I think, too much can be made of some of the details of the vision, and people kind of jump off all kinds of tangents. Basically, I think that the vision is to saying God was there. It was if you read through these verses, you will find that the appearance or likeness or looked like is used quite, quite a lot. Ezekiel is painting with broad strokes. And then he concludes verse 28 of chapter 1, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's not saying this is exactly it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God with him. He knows he's trying to describe the indescribable, explain that the inexplicable. And we can only read the description well aware of the limitations of the word, that the words cannot do justice to the experience itself. But they, 
the point is, God is here. The wheels, the wings are saying, the Lord is not confined to being in Jerusalem. You're not out of reach of the love of God. It's not as if there's some kind of radio signal being sent out from, from Jerusalem, and it's kind of fading as it goes further and further and further away. No, the Lord is with you here in Babylon, here in that place of desolation, here in that place where it seems nothing has gone right, here in that place where it seems you're only there because you've been defeated and God's let you down. Right there, God comes and God speaks. No border guards could keep him out. The heavens, verse 1, were opened, and the word of the Lord and the hand of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, came to Ezekiel. And it came to him in that place where he was. The details in verses 1 to 3 of the chapter are very specific, saying this is real, in real time, in the real world. And the word there in verse 3 is emphatic. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzeh, by the river Kebab in the land of the Babylonians. There, the hand of the Lord was on him. There, when things just seemed at their worst. There, in the place that they believed was unholy, God came. There, in the place that they were just used to sitting and weeping by the rivers, there the Lord came. Now, I don't think we can jump from that to saying that God and His presence will draw specially close to us in every, in every single instance of um, despair that we, that we have in our lives. But it does say there is nowhere we can go. There is nothing that can be going on among us or within us or between us that puts us beyond the reach of God. And visions like this one in chapter 1, these religious high points and experiences of God are not so that we can simply lap them up and know that whatever else all is well. Ezekiel is grasped by the Spirit of God. He's told that twice in, in verses 1 to 2. And twice the Lord says, I am sending you in verses 3 and 4. Here is a vision to call and serve. He's blessed in order to be a blessing to others. Now, that doesn't mean everything was going to be fine and dandy. It wasn't. Ezekiel would not be appreciated. The people, we are told in verse 7 of chapter 3, are hardened and obstinate. This is not really an, an easy call that uh, Ezekiel's getting here. There's sure there's this wonderful vision, this great excitement of the presence of God. Sure there's affirmation that God is with them, even in Babylon. Sure there is this then, this calling to serve God, but it's going to be really, really, really tough. I don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think they have them anymore, but um, when I was a lad, um, there used to be these adverts on television, you know, for joining the army and stuff like that, and, but they don't, don't seem to do it, you know, and it was, it was always a kind of, um, you know, join, join the professionals and, and see the world, you know, kind of. They never said, join the army and find yourself walking down Shankill Road and have kids spitting at you, and their big brothers making bombs or whatever. You know, they didn't, they didn't say that kind of stuff. It was, see the world, join the professionals, 
you know, it was all very, very kind of one-sided. And whatever else we say about the gospel, it doesn't do that, does it? Jesus didn't do that, did he? Anyone want to follow me? Okay, take up your cross daily and follow me. Does your right hand cause you to sin? Cut it off. Is your right eye causing you to sin? Pluck it out. Jesus says some really hard things about, you know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Come and follow me, the homeless person. Be homeless like, you know, he, he did not sugarcoat it at all. And God doesn't do the same with Ezekiel here. He's told that he's to go to uh, people who are hardened. So then, the call of Ezekiel in these chapters in the place of desperation and desolation, God comes. God speaks to him, assures him of the presence of his spirit. Also, going to chapter 3, the word of the Lord is given to him. And with these, he's to go to the people, but they're not going to be receptive. Now, there's a number of possible lines of application from Ezekiel's vision and call. Um, I want to, yeah, I want to mention four. Firstly, God's provision. What is God's provision to him? It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That is, God doesn't simply say to Ezekiel, just as He doesn't say to us, here's work for you to do, go and get on with it. God hasn't said to the church, I want you to be my agents, I want you to be my witnesses, I want you to be my representative of the, in the world. Go and get on with it all by yourselves. I will be with you always, said the risen Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel. Go, I will be with you. And Jesus had promised his followers the presence of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God was to be with us just as much, just as certainly as the presence of the physical Jesus was with these disciples. Are we that aware? of the Spirit of God? Are we that dependent and reliant on God's leading? Jesus said we should be. The Spirit was to replace Him, to be everything to Him that He was being to the followers. And then the Word of God was to become so much part of Ezekiel's life, it was as though he had eaten it that is, the Word of God is not just something that um, is to be kept at a distance or treated in any casual or cursory manner, but something we're to devour, something we're to get our teeth into, something we're to give our all to doing. Now, doesn't that sound all very old-fashioned and boring? What's the answers for the church today? Well, it starts with God's provision. It starts with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God given to us. And there is nothing else in 1,000 pages of Scripture or 2,000 years of church history that tells us that God has altered that or changed that or supplanted that in any way. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are totally crucial. Be diligent and getting to grips with the Word. Be open to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. 
God provides. Secondly, there is the cost of obedience. Ezekiel's first response is to do as God has said. He's been told to eat the scroll, verse 1 of chapter 3, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Ezekiel's first response is to obey. And again, there is no escaping that, and there's no sidestepping that, and there's no sidestepping the cost of that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who led much of the church resistance against Hitler and was, and was killed just as, the, um, just as the Allies were getting close to the, the camp where he was imprisoned. Bonhoeffer once said of the Christian life, you know, you don't have to go out there and, and look for a cross. You don't have to just follow Jesus and it's there. Just pick it up. As you follow Jesus, there will be a cross for you to bear. And that's what Jesus had said, and that, that is the gospel, that there is no following Jesus without bearing some kind of cross. I'd wondered about singing, um, <clears throat> I got a home in Gloryland um, th this morning, I sang, we sang, I have decided to follow Jesus instead, but I got a home in Gloryland, you know, you know it's, that, it's that lovely wee bouncy tune, <laughs> but, but the verse that says, if you will not bear a cross, you can't wear a crown. Do you know, I, I mean, I think, I think the tune sometimes works against the, works against the words at that point. It's nice and bouncy. But actually, that, that's, that's a huge thing to say. And that's a hard thing to say. If you will not bear a cross, you can't wear a crown. Just a simple wee spiritual hymn with a profound gospel point. And sometimes we talk about the faith in terms of just the blessings that we want, the assurance that we want, everything's going to be, going to be all right ultimately. Well, you can't have that. You can't have the crown if you will not bear a cross. And so while the provision of God is huge, the Spirit of God and the, and the Word of God in our lives, well, that's a wonderful thing. There's a challenge and, and a cost. The third thing I want to say from this is that the church today, it seems to me, is in something of a similar position to Ezekiel was all these years ago. Okay, we are not in a foreign land. I'm not sure that we can yet say that the church in this country is being persecuted. But we are in a place where we have gone from being at the center, being, being regarded as important, to now being marginalized and on the fringes. So, just this week, there's a, an atheist MP saying, let's, let's get rid of the, the bishops in the House of Lords, because, you know, this is no longer a believer's country. We, we're marginalized. Now, I've got sympathy with the point of taking the bishops out of the House of Lords, actually, but for, for different reasons. But the point he was making is, maybe once we were a religious society and people were not anymore. And, it, and in that point, he's not wrong. Just about a hundred years ago, the 1920s, um, the government uh, at one point announced a date for the general election. And the Church of Scotland said, what? That's our General Assembly week. 
They've got to change the date. And they did. Can you imagine that now? Mr. Sunak, that's the general election, general assembly that week. Aye, what's your point? The point is here that we've gone from that place at being at the center and regarded as important to the place on the, on the margins, just like Ezekiel had been ripped with the, many of the other exiles from Jerusalem and, and Judah and, and taken into Babylon and sitting by the rivers of Babylon and weeping because that's all that they, they knew what to do. That's where they found themselves. We've gone from the center to the margins, from majority to minority, from settlers to sojourners. We've gone from a place of privilege to living in a plural society. We've gone from control to witness and so on. And how do we respond to that? There are three bad responses, or at least three bad responses I can think of. One of them is to a kind of empty triumphalism where we pretend that nothing has changed, and we're still at the center, we're still really important, and, and so on. And that rings hollow because it, it's not the reality that most people know. Or another is just the kind of helpless nostalgia I remember the days of the Sunday school trip, there were six buses, and oh, those were the days. But a third mistake is just accommodation to, to the society around us. I was disturbed by the Archbishop of York's comments the, the, on Friday wanting to change the Our Father of the Lord's Prayer. Now, I like Stephen Cotterell. I, I've got a lot to, to be grateful uh, for, and many of his, his books I've found hugely, hugely helpful. But Stephen, you've got it wrong, pal. Why would we? This, this is cultural accommodation. This is giving in. You know, Jesus taught us to pray Our Father. And, and we're not making a gender point when we say our Father. We're making a point about the intimacy of God and the, and, and the care of God and the provision of God. But in a whole host of ways, we have been pressured to just accommodate to society around us. A number of times I've heard people say, well, you can't believe that or maintain that in these days. Well, I'm sorry, either it's true or it's not true. And if it's true, we can maintain it in these days. And if it's not true, we should never have been maintaining it anyway. So we, we sh it's not an empty triumphalism, pretend that everything's important. It's not just being nostalgic. It's not that kind of accommodation. We have to rethink, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's the challenge for Ezekiel and the exiles. How do we be faithful to God? You see, Ezekiel didn't get that at first because he thought that was tied up with the temple and being in Jerusalem and, and so, so on and the sacrifices there. That, that was all he had, had been taught to believe and brought up to believe. And he, so he's thinking, can't do any of that when I'm in Babylon. And there God has come to him and there God has said, here's my spirit, here's my word, go in and serve me, do my work. And Ezekiel's then got to say, well, wait a minute, 
how do I do that without the temple and without... He's got to relearn what it is to be faithful to God in a whole different setting. And, and this is what the church is not doing enough of, quite frankly. This is what we're struggling with. And, and so many of the conversations that we've been having about around Presbyterian Mission Plans are about keeping what we knew rather than saying, how do we sing the Lord's song in this new situation? How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Now, I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying you can answer that in five minutes. But that's what we have to give ourselves to. And there are many things, it's not hopeless, there are many things that an marginalized, apparently weak church can do that an established, apparently strong church can't. The weak church may, may not be a major speaker, but she can be a good listener. It may not be the exclusive preserve of the privileged, but it can be inclusive for societies marginalized. It may not be part of the dominant culture, but it can speak prophetically to that culture. It may lack authority, but it can radiate authenticity. The provision of God, the cost of serving, the task learning to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, and then fourthly and, and lastly, just to emphasize what this passage says to us about the presence of God. The vision in chapter 1 should not have us asking what all the little details mean, but should have us asking whether our God is too small. Is our experience of the Lord too faint and too weak? It's about our expectation of God being with us and what that can do. And the key issue in our lives and witness as Christians is a genuine living experience of God. We are to be servants of God, not just in telling others what Jesus wants us to do, but in actually serving, dishing Jesus up. Living Christ in such a way that others get Jesus on their plate and can have some Jesus too. That's the calling of the church. To bring the very life and the presence and the experience of God into all of reality. Is that our expectation? Should be. I sometimes wonder if um, some old stories told about previous preachers and so on are, are, um, are genuine or not, but it uh, might be apocryphal, I know not, but it makes the point well. Apparently, apparently a young minister um, once went to the famous Victorian Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon and he was concerned, this young preacher, that not many folk were becoming Christians under his ministry. And he went to Spurgeon and spoke to Spurgeon about it and saying how disappointed he was and, and so on. There's not enough folks becoming Christians. And Spurgeon said to him, well, you don't expect that every week, do you? And the minister said, well, No. And Spurgeon said, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem right there. Not expecting it. Because the promises of the gospel and the provision of the Spirit and the Word, when we put them into practice, how costly though it is, when we're seeking to sing the Lord's song, God is with us and there should be an expectation that our God is here. 
God is with us and among us. And he needs more Ezekiel types to work with and to work through. A people who know their God, who are led by the Spirit of God, devoted to the Word, obeying sacrificially, faithful in exile. That could be you and that could be me. For there is a great God, a great purpose, a great cause, and a way to enjoy an eternity of happy birthdays. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank and praise you for people like Ezekiel, people who heard your call and obeyed. Cost them enormous amounts. But through their obedience, we see the purposes of God advance. We see the blessings of God flow out. And Lord, that has continued down through the the years and the ages. People going out in Jesus' name, sharing not just the idea of Jesus, sharing not just instructions, but bringing the very life and presence of Jesus into new places. It's how the gospel reached here, and it's how we in time and turn come to, came to hear about you and came to know you. So, Lord, in these days when the church is feeling something of the exile experience, something of the being marginalized. When we sit with Ezekiel by our rivers and mourn, let us also look for hunger for the reality of the presence of God. Help us to be listening to the prompting, the leading of your Spirit. Help us to be faithful to your Word. And help us to take confidence that we're not serving a God who's distant, that we're not serving a God who's gone weak, but a God who is with us. And a God who is mighty to save. Amen.